do, Mad Dogs and Englishmen. Charlie, we were just starting to have a conversation off air that I thought we should have uh, on air. So should we just pick it up where we left off and you can start us off? Sure. Let's go for it. Well, we'll talk about this, I'm sure. But I am relatively hawkish on Russia uh, vis-a-vis Ukraine. Hmm. And I am under no illusions as to the character of Vladimir Putin and consider him to be an unreconstructed tyrant. But I really don't like this tendency that's crept in in the press to cast all opposition to President Biden or criticism of President Biden and his foreign policy as disloyal or unpatriotic. Yes, that is grotesque. And I don't like the suggestion made and then deleted by Lawrence Tribe, who should know better, that because Tucker Carlson said some really silly things, he did, that he's guilty of treason, (laughs) the punishment for which is death. I hate this. I hate this tendency, which, which is partly a product of our partisan fights, but does seem to pop up every time we have a democratic president. And before that... Uh, was committed by National Review in a famous essay that predates me, thankfully, because I think it's a disgrace. Unpatriotic conservatives. David Frum. That's right. Yeah, a couple of thoughts about that. I remember, you know, 9-11 and uh, the Iraq War and all those bumper stickers that used to say, dissent is the highest form of patriotism, that sort of thing. I hate that too, by Not the way, which we anymore, can come to. Of course. Yeah, it's dumb. <laughs> it's dumb. But um, yeah, it's um, people, of course, shift according to who is in the White House. Um, I do note with some amusement and satisfaction that it is a bit of a spectacle to uh, watch all these people who proudly proclaim themselves to be nationalists but can't quite convince themselves to take their own country's side in a fight. Um, but there is a um, more respectable, of course, version version of that criticism, um, which is they don't think that this sort of thing actually is in the country's interest, which I largely disagree with, but I think it's an argument worth taking seriously. Yeah, and I mean, we can argue over the most egregious examples, Candace Owens, for example, but the, the responses that I have taken aim at in a, a piece I just wrote were all made uh, in response to a Republican Party tweet saying mm. that Joe Biden exhibited weakness on the world stage. Yeah. If, if Americans can't say that, whether it's true or not, whether it's intelligent or stupid, whether it's right or wrong, if Americans can't say that, they're not free. Right. Agreed. This um, brings us to, if I can not quite change the subject, but maybe change the emphasis for a second, a uh, piece that I just wrote that just went up um, about one of our favorite subjects, of course, which is the imperial presidency, which is something that's especially notable in the matter of foreign policy, because, of course, the Constitution does invest the president with some pretty expansive powers on that front. But the sort of crowding out of everything else by the presidency really puts us in this this peculiar 
position where American foreign policy really changes radically every few years, which I don't think is healthy for the country. But also it really brings up a question that I don't think is is all that easy to answer, which is, is, is Vladimir Putin having to deal with the United States of America or is he having to deal with Joe Biden? Because that's not quite the same thing. No, it's not. But if we invest, but if we invest, you know, all of our foreign policy um, energy and substance in one person in the president, then essentially our place in the world, our ability to secure our national interests and to maintain some sort of consistent principles in our relations with the world, or at least consistent understanding of our own interests in our relations with the other nations of the world, um, depends on one man in one office, which is surely an unhealthy and dangerous thing and surely not what the framers intended. You know, we have a constitution that actually gives Congress some pretty substantial, uh, a pretty substantial role to play in foreign policy. Uh, you know, you have to have the Senate to approve treaties. Right. You have to have Congress to declare war. Uh, Congress has to approve, or the Senate has to approve, you know, the appointment of diplomats and such things, and ambassadors and whatnot. So, and, uh, and of course, it's up to uh, Congress, according to Article One, to you know maintain and provision the army and to set the rules for it and and all the rest of that stuff. So there is a substantial role to play there. It's not as though there's some bright line division between um, the executive having power over foreign policy and Congress having power only over domestic issues. But the more Congress has punted this stuff over the years um, through things like refusing to make declarations of war instead of kind of, you know, halfway empowering the executive to do things and halfway not. And um, just generally through sloth and cowardice to have abandoned its role in that realm has really left the president the only player on the field. And, um, you know, that has some, um, some real practical implications uh, I was writing in, in my piece that during the George W. Bush administration, you know, Bush was always attacked for being a unilateralist and this kind of, you know, uh, cowboy figure who didn't care about our allies and such. The Senate actually approved 163 treaties uh, during those years that were mostly um, ones that were put forward by Bush, although I guess a few of them were left over from the previous administration. And they had to do with things like human rights and environmental rules and all sorts of other things. And this is how you make policy and commitments and um, relationships permanent. In the Obama administration, there were only 20 uh, treaties that were passed. And the big things the Obama administration tried to do, you know, the Paris Agreement, uh, JCPOA and that kind of stuff all happened through executive orders rather than through the treaty process, which meant, of course, that as soon as Obama was gone, those were gone. Uh, some of the things that Trump did were similar kinds of things. Um, he did. Uh, his administration saw about as many treaties ratified as the Obama administration did. There was a big one with the revision of NAFTA. Uh, that was important. But the more presidents rely on executive orders rather than actually working with Congress to develop a more consensus national policy, the more unstable our policy becomes because there's no permanence from one administration to the next. As I was noting, what currently stands between Vladimir Putin and Berlin is uh, a project of the Harry Truman administration, NATO. Uh, not anything that Trump did, Biden did, Bush did, Obama did, Reagan did, 
uh, anything else. This was something that we entered into in the 1940s. And because we did it the right way, it's been lasting and meaningful and useful um, as opposed to some of these other things which are here for a year or two and then gone. Congress has really abdicated all three of its responsibilities and declined to use all three of its powers here. The first power is the war-making power, which is supposed to be narrow, but has instead become essentially a series of enabling acts. AUMFs that grant the president extraordinary latitude. The historical difference was always that Congress did not get involved in the day-to-day prosecution of the war. That was left to the president and the military, but it did decide which countries we were at war with and why and how long. Now it doesn't. The second, as you say, is a treaty process. Although, if I could interrupt for just a second, it is possible even to exaggerate that. You know, Lincoln got a lot of feedback from Congress about how he's conducting the Civil War. That's true. That's true. The the second is... um, uh, The treaty process, which used to be, even until recently, exercised by Congress. And the most famous example, obviously, is Wilson going abroad and agreeing to the League of Nations, putting it to the Senate, and the Senate saying, no, thank you. But as recently as 1998, Bill Clinton went abroad to Kyoto, agreed to the Kyoto Protocol, said that he would deliver a treaty got back to the United States, and never even submitted it for ratification because a year earlier, the Senate had voted 95 to nothing preemptively to say it would not engage. (laughs) Whereas, as you say, President Obama essentially set up a bunch of illegal treaties, which he got around by saying, well, they're presidential agreements, but come on. And the last area, and, and this bothers me, as much as the other two, even though it sounds like the weak, weaker relation, is the power of the purse. Yeah. If you actually look at the way the Constitution is set up, there's not an enormous amount that Congress could do if the president decided to prosecute a war or engage in military action that Congress disliked. It could impeach him. That's a nuclear option. It could pass a writ of mandamus asking him to stop, although that would really be inverted, I suppose, from the usual way those work. But it can cut off the money. Unfortunately, unfortunately, the prevailing sentiment, and presidents know this, is that once America is engaged, to cut off the money is unpatriotic or destructive, counterproductive. And so Congress never, ever, ever does it. But it could. Yeah. At the very least, it should should debate. This is the thing that drives me the most crazy, is that we've had 20 years of wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, incursions in Syria, and no one talks about it. I mean, leave aside whether we should be there, whether we shouldn't, leave aside whether the AUMF is enough, leave aside whether Congress isn't performing its role as... It should under the Constitution. How could it possibly be the case that we don't hold annual debates on this in the legislative chamber? I find that yeah. extraordinary. You know, in writing about this, I was going through looking at some of the treaties that have been rejected by the Senate over the years. And one of them that really jumped out at me, because I guess I didn't know this. I don't know how I missed this uh, little fact in American history. Um, but apparently we were going to annex what was then called Santa Domingo, now called the Dominican Republic, 
in the Reconstruction era and try to make a state out of it. And the uh, Senate said, no, we don't think this is a very good idea. So the power to say no, of course, is is, is important and probably least, if not more important than the power to actually recommend ratification and move things through the process. But simply not having the Senate involved at all in this stuff is is a problem. It's also a problem because there's a difficult balance that you need to strike, right? We want to have kind of stable, consistent policy that doesn't change radically from one administration to the next administration so that we may remain a kind of credible and predictable uh, player on the world stage and that our allies kind of know what to expect from us. At the same time, you do want the people to be able to effect changes in their government, including changes in foreign policy through elections. Um, The problem with the way we're doing things right now is it all gets decided in one election every four years rather than having a more consensus policy that's shaped both by presidential elections and congressional elections over a longer period of time so that you do have democratic input and feedback into the foreign policy process, but not um, radical change every couple of years. Yeah, and I think this is a key point because whenever we talk about domestic politics and I say how much I like the filibuster, progressives and a few conservative opponents of the filibuster say, in what other circumstance do we have supermajority requirements? Sure, Charles, you talk about stability, you talk about the need for predictability in federal law, you talk about the space that such an arrangement provides at the state level where the power really lies. That's all fine, but what about democracy? Okay, but if you actually look at the way the Constitution is set up as it relates to Article 2, Section 2, which is the Treaty Clause, it anticipates precisely the same model on the international stage. As you say, you need to have two-thirds of the Senate to pass a treaty. Why? So that every two-year, four-year, six-year changes in majorities don't lead to treaties being accepted and then rescinded, accepted and then rescinded. If you can get... a, a a change in American foreign policy through two-thirds of the Senate, that's probably going to stick around for a while, which allows your allies, as you say, to to plan accordingly. But what we have now is essentially the equivalent of if treaties took 50 votes in the Senate, which is that every four years or so, the president comes in and says, nope, and puts a red line through the previous set. <laughs> Yeah, there's also, I mean, it's good to spread this stuff out either, you know, in time or geographically. I mean, that's one of the good arguments for the Electoral College is that um, you don't just need to win a majority of the votes on this Tuesday in November. Um, You also have to win the majority of the votes in a substantial number of states, um, which is a different way of making a secondary test to that bare majority where you end up with a more stable and consensus-oriented outcome. I mean, you and I agree on this. <laughs> I'm yeah, trying to think I, of something. I'm trying to think how emphatically and effusively I can agree with you on that. <laughs> yeah, um, it's one of those things that's worth repeating, though. I think no, certainly. it is. It is. So I assume that you are kind of with me in that you are not ready to see U.S. forces dispatched to drive the Russians out of Ukraine. And if we were going to do that, the time was probably 2014 and not now, but are interested in seeing um strong 
um, non-military measures taken. Is that correct? Yeah. If we could just step back even further from that, I suppose the first question is, well, do you care? And I do. Hmm. I think you do as well. And then Why I know. You care well, as, as I've said in the last few days, when asked about this on various programs, we should start by stipulating that not every dictator is Hitler and not every crisis is the Sudetenland. But I think we have learned from history that the principle of national sovereignty, which has been uh, extant since at least the Treaty of Westphalia, is important, and that when it is violated willy-nilly, bad things happen. Uh, the United States is the preeminent world power. It took over that role from Britain in 1945. And both Britain and the United States have historically considered it to be in their own interest and in the interest of global stability to care when one sovereign nation is invaded by another. Not always, and there are examples of hypocrisy. But typically that has been the case. We've often also struggled when that principle comes into conflict with what can be spun as self-determination. And again, I'm not drawing a direct analogy, but if Russia invaded Britain, I think everyone watching would say, I see the problem. But because Ukraine is next to Russia, because their histories are tightly linked, because it is plausible that some, not only within the breakout areas, but in Ukraine itself, are ethnically or wish to be politically Russian, we start to become confused, much as we did with Germany's claim to the Sudetenland, for example. And when that happens, we get squishy. I don't. I fall back on the the most basic of all principles, I suppose, which is that the United States should be opposed to, however it manifests that, sovereign nations going into other sovereign nations based on what are obvious pretextual claims. And uh, the fact that it's a long way away might mean that we are less likely to commit troops than we would be if it were France or Canada. But that doesn't mean it doesn't matter. And so... You know, the, the first hurdle is, does it matter? My answer is yes. Yeah, I think we should probably take Putin seriously when he laments the loss of the Soviet empire and proposes to reestablish it in, in whole or in part. And, um, you know, if you think about the most expansive interpretation of that, you know, the Soviet reach went well beyond the borders of the Soviet Union proper into the, um, you know, puppet states around it. So the real limits of Soviet power was, you know, was Bernal Street in, in Berlin. Uh, we're not talking about things that are just um, in Eastern Europe and, uh, and far away from NATO, far away from the European Union, far away from American military bases and things that we, um, you know, we have, we have interest in. So I think, you know, beyond just the, um, I don't like to think of it as a moral question exactly. I mean, there is a moral question about whether we stand by and allow countries to be torn up by bigger, stronger countries next to them. 
But um, it's not just a moral question. There's also, you know, there are practical questions that go along with that. Um, there are um, effects that are attached to that, and there are examples that are set, precedents that are set. And eventually you have to start to live with those in places that maybe you care about more than Americans care about Ukraine. Um, you know, Michael uh, Brendan Doherty uh, sort of used the mocking example of uh, Montenegro this morning. Yeah, I don't think your average American could find uh, Montenegro on uh, Montenegro, I guess, on a um, map. Uh, that doesn't mean it's not important. That doesn't mean that um, we don't have any interests in play there. You understand what I mean? I do. I do. I, I think there's also a lack of self-confidence at play. The view of the American left and the view of many on the right, unfortunately, is that there's nothing particularly good about the United States or the Pax Americana. That there's nothing inherently superior to having a world in which the preeminent power is a Britain or a United States. And that we either don't have the moral standing to lecture others, get involved in the affairs of others, or we have so many problems at home that we should be focused there instead. And I understand the argument uh, made last. I don't understand any of the others. But it is our issue. Everything yeah, you know, ultimately comes back if you are the world's superpower to you. Yeah, that's something that we often, I think, have a hard time understanding is that our interests um, are not all contained within our borders. And those interests are legitimate interests. Um, there's, no, there's no version of modern American power in the modern American situation in which that isn't true. And we have to make distinctions between, you know, what kind of countries and regimes we're talking about here. You know, there's a reason the Lithuanians are afraid of the Russians. Um, you know, we're talking about a country here whose government in the 20th century murdered something on the order of 60 million people. Um, we're not talking about, you know, the, the European Union. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I hate this rhetoric of, well, the Russians feel encircled by NATO. You know, Switzerland is literally encircled by the European Union. No one worries about it very much. Uh, on the other side, because we're talking about um, institutions and associations of very, very different character. Um, NATO is not an organization that has gone around the world and put millions of people into concentration camps or intentionally starved to death tens of millions of Ukrainians, as the Russians did um, not too long ago. So, you know, this idea of, well, they've got a legitimate interest in uh, in whether Ukraine or Lithuania or Poland or Montenegro joins this or that security alliance, I just don't buy that it's legitimate. Um, I think that, um, if anything, there's a much, much stronger argument on the other side that it's easier to understand the Lithuanian point of view, um, that we would like to join an alliance to protect us against this country, which has historically occupied, disintegrated, and oppressed us, rather than it is to understand the Russian point of view of we must have influence over these countries that we used to occupy and oppress. Yeah, when I think of defense, I, I think specifically of defense. It's a good way I think to think of it. You and I have talked about this before that it's odd that the Department of Defense is called the Department of Defense, given that it does a lot more. It used to be the Department of War. Mm. 
I'm a defense hawk, by which I mean that I want an extremely strong American military that is capable of defending us and, and prophylactically discouraging anyone from coming near us. And I think that this has informed my view of the Ukraine situation. One does not have to be on board with the so-called Bush doctrine, preemptive interventions in other places, yeah. democratization and so on, in order to say that there is a difference between you know, a, a country um, being evil and therefore opening itself up to change and a country sitting there and being invaded by another one. And, you know, when I, that just informs a lot of my thinking. I, I, I want a strong defense. And, you know, I don't know what we should specifically do about Ukraine, but I do know that they didn't invade Russia. It's the other way around. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, Putin's complaints about encirclement and the expansion of NATO, to me, really illustrate the wisdom in having expanded NATO. Because if there's one thing Putin has shown that he's willing to do, it's to invade non-NATO countries. Um, but so far, not to invade NATO countries. Yeah, and you know, I, I, I'm so irritated by this because I, I read this piece in the Daily Telegraph by um, Nigel Farage in which hmm. he cast the uh, the situation as being the product of uh, aggression, I suppose, or provocation from NATO. And I don't believe that for a second. I understand why Vladimir Putin will say that. I understand that it behooves the Russian government to cast this as reactive. But I really don't feel any great obligation to go along with the ruse. Well, yeah, it's like when you've got, you know, um, so-called civil rights um, activists saying if this court doesn't find in our favor, uh, you know, doesn't find guilty the person we want to find guilty in this case, there are going to be riots and arson and things. And then when the court makes the decision and the riots happen, you say, well, it's provocation. What did you expect? Yeah. I mean, the, the argument here seems to be that Vladimir Putin ordered the invasion of Crimea. The Ukrainians then armed up because of that. And now that they've armed up, that's a provocation which justifies the invasion of Ukraine. <laughs> <Right. laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Crazy stuff. What other aspects of this uh, situation should we talk about? Well, I, I tell you one thing that's been bothering me. I do think that Joe Biden projects weakness. I, I think you could determine that by watching him with the sound off on a black and white TV. Sure. I do think that... Worse with the sound on. Yeah, Vladimir Putin, who is 69, is probably looking at the the world stage and saying this might be his best shot. America is uh, weak in his eyes. It's suffering internally from the remnants of COVID, from inflation, debts, so on. But I dislike the American tendency to cast everything that happens in the world as if it were the direct product of our contemporary partisan fights. Yeah. It's of a piece with uh, having turned the president into a shaman. And I say, oh, we have a good president because the economy is good and the crops grew this year. 
Yes, it matters more in foreign policy. And yes, there is a degree to which what happened in Afghanistan and some of the decisions Biden has made led to this. But this is not happening because Joe Biden is president. This is not a new uh, desire on behalf of the Russian government. We've been struggling with Vladimir Putin since before 9-11. This was one of the early questions that President George W. Bush who at that point was a non-interventionist, uh, had to, to think about. And it just bothers me that we so quickly fall into this. Joe Biden became president, then the Russians moved troops into Ukraine, therefore. It's so yep. much more complicated than that. And you know, if you want to criticize Biden, go for it. I, again, I loathe this this idea that you're somehow siding with the enemy if you do that. But I'm just not convinced that it is the most important or even one of the most important factors at play here. Uh, the question is what we do, sure. But, you know, there's this sort of morality play element to this that is so childish. Like, well, Joe Biden is really bad, and he said bad things, and inflation is bad while he's president, and then Biden invaded... Uh, Biden invaded, and then Putin invaded. Therefore, ah, come on, come on, come on. It's it's just so myopic. Yeah. <sighs> Are there any other subjects we want to touch today? Um, let's see. What did I write about on Monday? Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is a good topic, although we can leave it for next week if you think it's too big. Um, this idea that is is popular in Silicon Valley and among some libertarians too, that in the future we will get physical objects in the same way as we currently get streaming services. So you won't own a drill or a car oh, yeah, or yeah, a lawn. Yeah, yeah. I, I read your piece about that. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting, by the way. Yeah, what is your view of it? Because, I mean, this is particularly close to my heart at the moment because I've been redoing my garage. And so I have all of these tools lying on the workbench. Yeah. Um, owning things and what that actually means, I think, is being kind of a complicated question because, you know, I feel like you never really own your house or your car uh, because of the, you know, tax situation and such that attaches to those things. So at some level, you're always... Uh, renting what you allegedly own from the state. So I think that the question ends up getting complicated. I don't mind um, renting things um, that I think are going to have um, one-time or short-term usefulness. I think in some sense that really makes a lot of sense economically and you get some real efficiencies there. But... Um, I think it is easy to carry that too far and to get into the realm of the um, absurd. So what's absurd? Because in, in some contexts, it does make sense. I think one of the issues here, leave aside my broader objection, which is that if we're going to keep canceling people, you really don't want to be reliant on a big corporation, for example, to, to get hold of a drill or a car. But on a practical basis... This seems to me one of those ideas that actually would make sense in certain circumstances, but probably not in most in a country this big. Take cars, for example. It is true that my car sits most of its time unused in the garage. 
but it is worth it to me to have it there. It wasn't when I lived in New York City. I didn't have one. So in a sense, I already had that service in New York City. It was either Uber or taxicab. And I can absolutely see, especially with self-driving cars, that in the future, you might just have a supply of cars that are roaming around the city at any given point. You pick up your phone, you say, I want to go here, and then you dispense with the car. Most of America doesn't look like New York City. So how are you going to scale that? I mean, that's where I think some of this sounds impractical to me, even aside from whether it should be. Yeah, there's also something you touched on, which is... um things like books and films and music. Um, Increasingly, I find myself wanting some permanence in those things as they do get quietly changed Mm -hmm. and bulderized and uh, censored um, over time. You know, I think about that passage in um, 1984, which is half half and half sitting on my desk in front of me, uh, that goes, you know, every record has been changed, every photo has been retouched, every building has been renamed. Um, We're not going to get to that point but you do get to certain points like that where um, songs disappear, um, sections of books disappear, uh, TV shows disappear, um, even if the rest of the series remains, that sort of thing. And um, I'd like to have more control over that, yeah. Yeah, and also those changes are iterative rather than additive. In the in the past, if the New York Times had to issue a correction in the later edition of the newspaper, you could plausibly own both copies. But if the New York Times changes uh, a piece on its website and elects not to append a correction, the old one is deleted as part of the updating process. Now, there are ways to keep that, for example, with archiving software or sites that will snapshot the old. But those are much less practical for Spotify or Netflix or what you will. And so if... Netflix or Spotify or the BBC iPlayer service decides to take out something it considers offensive and that's the only copy that you have, it's gone. It doesn't put it aside and say that's version two. It writes over the first one. And I think people are quickly coming to recognize this, that they should, if they wish to keep intact their favorite art, own a copy of it that they have control over and i just would not want to be in a position where i needed a car and i had said something on twitter the previous day that had annoyed a mob and the car company in my area said no we're not renting to you you're part of a hate group yeah yeah i've given some thought about that to what it would look like in um you know if you had a really um advanced uh, invasive, comprehensive Chinese-style social credit system, you know, in a kind of science fiction near future United States, what that would look like. And, you know, the thing of, you know, aut- autonomous cars that won't go where you want them to go because somebody thinks you shouldn't go there. Yeah, and at the very least, you would not be able to get a car without being tracked. Yeah, well... <laughs> We're already there, I'm afraid. But, uh, we are we are there to an extent, but it is possible to shut off the GPS in your car, and it is possible in most of the country to drive without being uh, filmed every 12 feet, which is not true in Britain. But yeah. if you take an Uber or you have a self-driving car, it is impossible. Yeah. Apple AirTag's not going to help that. 
Nope, that's true. Do you have any thoughts about those? You're a little more techy than I am. I don't mind those as long as people know what they're getting into. Yeah. It's a choice. I have a phone. I carry it with me. I can theoretically be tracked. I can also turn it off. So as long as I know what it is connected to, I'm I'm fine with it. Same thing with Apple AirTags. What I don't like is the lack of I think we'll see a lot of people sneaking them into their spouse's cars and then wishing they hadn't. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> well, because they'll look to see where they've gone. and Right, and, and be unhappy with what they discover. Oh, no, she's at Tiffany's again. I don't think that's what you meant. <laughs> Not exactly what I was thinking, but, um, yeah, that's um, certainly a possibility as well. All right. Any closing thoughts on Ukraine before we put this one to bed? Well, at the moment, it's confusing, at least to me, as a non-foreign policy expert. So I, I'm I'm looking forward to reading more to find out what exactly is happening and what it means. And there doesn't seem to be a massive shooting war right now. Yeah. All right. Talk to you next week, Charlie. All right.